This episode of the Tefo Mahapi Show is brought to you by TrueHost.Africa. TrueHost.Africa is one of the most reliable cloud companies around. They offer domain names, web hosting, free website builders, and email solutions. TrueHost.Africa supports thousands of businesses and professionals around the world. As a listener of the Tefo Mahapi Show, you get a discount if you buy a .Africa domain name at TrueHost.Africa. To claim your discount, just go to truehost.africa forward slash iAfrican. That is truehost.africa forward slash I-A-F-R-I-K-A-N and place your order for a .africa domain name and any other service. Once you're ready to check out, you can then use the coupon iAfrican. Again, that's I-A-F-R-I-K-A-N to get the discount before paying for your order. Welcome to an episode of the Tiffo Mahapi Show hosted by myself. The show explores the impact, whether famously or infamously, some of my guests have had on the world. I believe that opening businesses and, and the healthy capitalism without the corporations which destroy the environment, etc. I think be naive to say that we've completely overcome any polarizing or divisive issues on the racial front. We thank you for taking some time out to listen to the podcast. If you open any newspaper, online current affairs publication, or news channel anywhere in Africa where media is not censored, you are almost bound to find a story about a corrupt politician on any given day. Of course, corruption doesn't originate in Africa and is not unique to Africa. However, the effects of corruption, especially when it involves public funds, are more pronounced across Africa as such monies rob the citizens of various public services that would go a long way to improving their lives. That's why I decided to have an in-depth conversation with Mama Obi Ezekwesili on this episode to help us understand this cancer and various ways we can curb it. Mama Ezekwesili, as you will hear during the podcast, is passionate about not only the development of Nigeria, but of Africa and its people. She co-founded Transparency International and served as one of the directors of the global anti-corruption body based in Berlin, Germany. Under Olusegun Obasanjo's second term as president of Nigeria, Mama Ezekwesi served first as the federal minister of solid minerals and later as federal minister of education. She would later announce a candidacy for the Nigerian presidential elections of 2019. However, she would later withdraw from the process, citing divergence of values and visions with her political party. Let's get straight to it. It's quite an honor to have you on my podcast, ma'am, Obi Gaeli Ezekwesili. Did I pronounce that correctly? Call me Obi. Obiageli Ezekwesili. Ezekwesili. Okay, Obiageli. Yeah. I was about to get to that because I noticed that you are commonly known as Obi. And as a Star Wars fan, and I don't know if you watch Star Wars, there's a character <laughs> called Obi, Obi-Wan <laughs> Kenobi. <laughs> well, I, I know that the superior forces are with me. <laughs> But I think we'll get straight to it, and I know because we've got limited time. I think one of the things I've observed as a young person across the continent and traveling a bit across the continent is that we seem to have a problem, and I don't know if it's it's uh, it's by accident or it's by intent. We seem to have a problem with leaders that are corrupt, if I can put it bluntly. And what I mean by corrupt, I mean that they don't deliver services generally for the public good or for the citizens. And I know that this is something quite close to your heart, given the organizations and the work that you've worked with. What are your thoughts on this? Is it a systemic thing? Is it a cultural thing? What causes this? Well, one of the things that we established 
at the time that we founded Transparency International, the global organization that works on issues of corruption almost three decades ago, is that corruption is not cultural to societies, but over time, at the poor development of systems of sanction and reward can make a habitual pattern of incentivizing bad behavior look like there is a new artificial culture that rewards bad behavior. Corruption is not cultural to Africa. I made that point as a young mind that was a co-founder of Transparency International, and I maintain that same position today, even in the face of evidence that some of our sectors on our continent have been overridden by a certain habit and pattern of behavior that would suggest that people have acculturized to a certain pattern. Yet, my sense is that it is the lack of institutions and the lack of systems and processes that are founded on collective value that has cost us what we currently uh, project as being a continent where corruption is a culture. So what that says to us is that because what we find is an artificial construct of a failed institutions building environment, should we succeed in building the right institution that we once had in the pre-colonial Africa, we had institutions and mechanisms at the community level for sanctioning bad behavior and for rewarding good behavior. Um, It is the fact that the adoption of modern bureaucracy without aligning it to existing systems and structures for punishment and reward that cost us this artificial state of acculturation toward bad behavior without consequence, which has grown to the level of impunity on our continent. Now, you mentioned something important, and, and that's what I wanted to start with and find out. You said that it's not cultural to Africa. Obviously, corruption is prevalent across the world. But would you argue that it ends up becoming a culture, that as people repeat these practices, it sort of becomes part of the system of doing things well, in any specific country? In all that I said, uh, that's, that's, that's what I said. What you just said, I said an artificial construct emerges when over time you do not build the necessary system and the processes as well as uh, the institutions for uh, defining uh, sanctions and reward in an environment. So what emerges is an artificial construct. It doesn't mean that that's how the people are. It is that you have incentivized the people into developing a pattern of behavior that is abhorrent and quite antithetical to the people that they used to be. The innate way pattern of behavior of the African person is not to be corrupt like you do. They don't wake up as Africans and, you know, come with uh, the DNA of corruption. That's totally unproven. You understand my point? So the environmental conditioning where we are basically abandoned the systems of reward and sanction that we had in pre-colonial Africa and because our societies have decided that, you know, the the pattern of behavior where people can get away with corruption, become wealthy and are not questioned is is okay. That's an artificial emergence of a certain way of behavior. And the point that I am making is that empirically, if you, in that kind of artificiality of a new pattern of behavior, 
uh, changed the incentives and changed the reward system and changed the sanction system and impunity has consequences, you would find that Africa would fall into shape. There wouldn't be anything like, oh, you know, this is cultural to them. Because anything that says that corruption is cultural to Africa is a racist ideology. I'm sure you that's not what you want to project. Oh, no, not at all. What I mean by culture is more, how do I put it? A method and a way of how people do things, not necessarily by race, but how people have become used to doing certain things and have sort of given up and accepted that this is the way we do things. Well, this is not the way we do things. This is the new and artificial way that we do things. It's not accepted. It is that, you know, over time, as the nation state has failed to punish, has failed to punish bad behavior and has rewarded bad behavior while punishing good behavior, they have distorted the incentive system. And so... People tend to think, okay, if you cannot beat this uh, behemoth of a system that is pushing against your values, then you better join them. That's not your culture. That's something that is emergent. That's something that you can challenge and that you can change. All right? So uh, the reason that I tie it to the matter of race is that a lot of the times when people say that corruption is cultural, they are saying that corruption is a black person's problem. And yet, based on empirical and, in fact, analytical evidence and historical evidence that we have, there is absolutely no society that can, you know, point fingers at the other society. The difference between our continent and other societies is that they made sure to build systems and processes and institutions that we predictably punish bad behavior. We once had it and we lost it. We still have it at a very micro level. I mean, the truth is you, you probably have it in South Africa that at the community level, people are very conscious of, of the yes. consequences that would follow their behavior. So whereas they would not steal community money, but when they come to Pretoria, they would likely steal. They, they go to Durban, you know, in government cycle, circle, they would steal, they, or they, in Abuja, they would steal, they would do things that are abhorrent. But when it gets to community, you see them attain some angelic status because they don't want to be excommunicated by their own community. Now, the, but that's, that's not the single story situation because we have to nuance that. Unfortunately, part of what's now going on is that at the community level, these people are having so much leverage and influence because of the depth of poverty that we now see across our continent. So at the community level, people are beginning to get confused and abandon some of those traditional systems of punishing behavior at the very base level of community. And that's something that we need to you know, be worried about because these people of great influence who have made money in not a good kind of way are now pushing forcefully against, even at the best basic level of community, the, the culture and the traditional systems of knowing that values are not to be negotiated away, uh, no matter how much is on the table. They are pushing against it. And poverty is beginning to make some of our people trade off 
those values. That's dangerous for our society. I really like that you raised that point. Two points that you raised that I really want to elaborate on and talk about. The first one is about, yes, at the community level, I stand to be corrected, and you, I think you're right. Across all African communities, or most, we have a certain system that's always been there where bad behavior is punished. Doing bad things is always either reported or punished. But as you correctly say, once people amongst our communities start rising into positions of political power or even business power, because corruption is not limited to the political sphere only, they start doing bad things, but they get away with them. The first thing I want to elaborate on is, firstly, what are your thoughts on how we can solve this sort of trade-offs that we're starting to make or people are starting to make? But also to ask you, don't you think this is because as you move away from your community it's such a small space it's it's few people everybody knows you everybody knows who your mother was everybody knows your history as a family you know you are all neighbors you are almost like a small community but as you move away from that community you become far removed from the people if i can put it that way and you almost don't see the real consequences to people's day-to-day lives and also you don't get to meet people who can hold you to account on a day-to-day But, you know, there's a bit of truth to what you've said. The question to ask is, why then do we have modern systems of governance if simply because you've moved from your community and you're now serving at a state or national level, you can get into bad behavior? It ought not to be so. As a matter of fact, what you point that I made, which is that we missed a step in uh, the in the migration of our continent from pre-colonial Africa continent to a colonial Africa continent that then became independent and uh, adopted, whether it's the British bureaucracy or, or the Spanish bureaucracy or the Portuguese French bureaucracy. Whichever one we adopted was that it's supposed to be modern bureaucracy, but unfortunately in adopting it, we did not find the place of convergence between these new artificial constructs that have been uh, uh, left behind by the colonialists. We did not sort of find ways of aligning our traditional systems of being able to hold people accountable in society to the new things that we had, we adopted. And so a misalignment and meant that there's an alienation of the African uh, systems of reward and punishment from what you call today's bureaucracy. So let us say that we have accepted that this to be so, because it is indeed so when you study the different publics that we see in Africa. There's the community public, there's the state public, and then there's the national public. And your point is that, you know, at the, at the different level of the publics, people at, assume different kinds of behaviors and patterns of action. And then because of proximity, that of the community uh, still holds the people to a certain level of conduct. Uh, once it That's gets right. to state, it it, it it steps down. And when it gets to national, it probably vanishes. So, but, but, but the point that I am making is that in the failure to align the two periods, the pre-colonial Africa and the post-colonial Africa or the independent Africa, we missed the step. And that's costing us a lot because community, public, state public, national public should be a continuum. Do you understand that? It should be a continuum. It should not, there should be no disconnect between community, state, and national. That's one. 
The second point is that modern democracy comes with certain tenets, with certain mechanisms, certain ethos, certain values, certain systems and institutions. That is why we talk about democratic accountability. So it should be that our practice of democracy should over time have enabled us to build and in the process of building those values of democracy, those uh, principles and nuances and processes and values and institutions of democracy, that would have been the process that would have been on our own without the colonial brought our traditional systems of upholding values into our new bureaucracies, our businesses, our social contract and social capital and the way that we basically agree our values in general. So we have failed in the process of nation building uh, to adopt even our own and failed also to practice the one that we now have in the way that it should be. So it, we're practicing democracy in the bridge. So we don't have our own. We do also don't have a, the full package of the one that we adopted, post-colonial Africa. So here we are with a continent that is, in a way, confused. Confusion is part of what has created this state of, you know, anomaly where bad behavior is uh, rewarded and uh, good behavior is punished. And so when you ask the question, how do we then begin the process of changing this quagamaya that we find ourselves in? The thing is to step back and to say, can we analytically unpack the problem? We, what I've tried to do is to analytically unpack the problem to situate the problems in a phased kind of way by understanding what happened under different eras, right? Then yes. to say, okay, now that we understand that we had a gap, how do we begin to bridge that gap? Well, the number one thing that I identified is that we must accept that there is something called the office of the citizen in any modern democracy. So if we accept that there is not just the office of the president or the office of the governor or the, uh, I don't know what you call your provincial people, the, the ones that lead the provinces in, uh, what are they called in South Africa? We have premiers. The premiers. Yes, I do know Popo Molefe, who was, you know, together with me for a, a Harvard program once upon a time, you know, so a premier or uh, the city mayor, you know. So we need to, to do first. The most fundamental change that we can have on our continent is to accept that beyond these offices created, you know, uh, as political offices, that the greatest office in South Africa, in Nigeria, in Tanzania, in Sudan, in Mali, is not the office of the president or the prime minister or the office of the head of the legislature or the office of the uh, the, the Supreme Court justice, uh, uh, the justice of your the, the chief justice of your country. It is actually the office of the citizen. If we can, you know, bring this kind of a construct to bear in the minds of the Africans, what immediately happens is that you empower the average citizen to understand that. Oh my goodness. The constitution recognizes me as not just an individual, but as an individual who's got an office to run. In my capacity as a citizen of South Africa, as a citizen of Nigeria, I, I have an office of the citizen. And there are rules and responsibilities and obligations and, uh, you know, privileges that grew to me as a result of this. So you know what that does? It awakens the same kind of mindset 
that people have at the community level. They stop seeing the government in Pretoria or in Abuja or in Dar es Salaam as their, those people's government, the politicians' government. They immediately say that it is their government. They are the ones with the greatest power. They determine the legitimacy of all offices in the land. Don't you know that? In a democracy, it is the power of the citizens acting as a collective that can determine whether you have legitimacy or not. But has that been awakened? It has not been. And so the lack of accountability that we see across the continent is because the citizens are sleeping, sleeping on the wheels. The citizens don't know their power. They don't know the enormity of the power, the influence, the leverage that they have acting together because they have always sort of seen this political construct of democracy as something alien to them. So even though they vote, they can go and vote and just disappear and not think that those they voted for owe them anything. So substantially, I think that what will change the situation that you painted is for us to now use the concept of the office of the citizens to build very active, very informed, very engaged, very vigilant, very enlightened, empowered citizenry across our continent. They can change the story of the politics, political outcomes, and then the journey of democracy on our continent. And it is through them that we bring the three publics into to convergence. We then bring the community level demands for accountability to the state level, to the national level, and we can bridge the gulf that currently exists and confuses the African political and leadership space. That's one. The second one is that the political culture that has become the way of life of our political class on the continent, that many of whom don't qualify to be called elite because the behavior that and pattern that they show does not in any way symbolize elite action. We need to focus on the political class of our continent and say, what is it about this political class that you know, worsened the situation on the continent? And we can say clearly that, well, they missed the definition of leadership completely. Leadership is service, it is service, it is service. But unfortunately, our own leadership on the continent has corrupted the definition of leadership. They think that leadership is to luxuriate in, in privilege. They think that the leader is the one entitled to the good life and that that good life is their entitlement and, and that the citizens must suffer so that these few people of influence can have a really good life. That's a distortion of what leadership. And because this is distorted, the continent gets worse and worse in the way that its political culture grew over time. So what do you think happened? People think that going into politics is the fastest way to become not just influential, but to make a lot of money. That is terrible. Politics is local. Politics should be about serving the people at the lowest level of society. But that is not what we have. So the second thing we must do is that we must emerge a new political class, existing marketplace of supply of very decadent people who stock in trade is to go into politics in order to enjoy themselves. We must fight that. That pipeline of supply of such kind of people must be fought by developing a different and new pipeline of a set of people who think differently, who process the issues of leadership entirely differently and sees leadership, public leadership, as service. And that means 
We need to grow them. We need to image them. We need to be deliberate and we need to be intentional. We need to be strategic. We need to be very, you know, deep in the way that we define what kind of attributes should the new set of leaders that emerge on our continent have. I am known to espouse that for anybody to be a true leader in our continent, we must measure the person, evaluate the person against using three uh, core attributes. Number one, character. Character, that state of being of where a person has wholesome integrity, integrity that is not contextual wholesome integrity, because that's really what integrity is. Integrity is holistic. Anything off of it no longer is integrity. So integrity, honesty, reliable, uh, you know, sacrificial, given to public interest that is subordinate, that, that is never subordinated to their private benefit, you know, character, a state of where you can, you know, you're dependable. Your yes is your yes. Your no is your no. You are a person of moral rectitude. You are a person who will not negotiate values with anybody, no matter what's on the table. So character, then uh, competence. They must be people that we have trained in order that they can cognitively identify what a problem is, clarify the problem, identify the risks, and then propose solutions because they've got the training, they've got the skills to be able to solve different types of problems, right? Or to assemble the people who can solve those kinds of problems that they cannot themselves alone solve. And then the third C is capacity. Capacity means that we don't want people who, you know, yes, they have character, they have competence, but they're simply not capable. You know, when crisis emerges in, in the society, they cave under the crisis, under the weight of the crisis. We want people with resilience. We want people who are so capable in the midst of turbulence and uncertainty. They remain leaders, able to mobilize the solutions that society needs. Yeah, no matter the yeah. gravity of the situation in the society, What's they, happening they, they stand firm. Yeah firm to calm everybody down and find the way out of the situation that troubles society. So these three C's, character, competence, and capacity, they have to be the basis on which we evaluate our new leaders that we train. Now, we must train them. Now, I, I like the, the, the model that you are proposing, starting with the uh, office of the citizen, and I want to start there. It's great to say we should have an office of the citizen. And because simply put, that's why we call our leaders public servants. They are supposed to serve the public. That's why they're supposed to. But as you say, they've deviated from that. And some of them see it as a way for them to become richer. So I'll give you an example. In South Africa, starting on the 21st of August in 2018, we've had this thing called the Judicial Commission of Inquiry into allegations of state capture led by Judge Zondo, where people have been coming forward with evidence of corruption in government and have been detailing how I think now we've gone into trillions of rands or if not millions of dollars that's been siphoned out of government to enrich people. And it, and going back to your the, the point we were talking about initially when we started, this cuts across races because we've had white people come and talk about how they bribed politicians in government. So it cuts across races. What I wanted to find out, and coming back to your concept of office of the citizen, how do we legally and constitutionally implement something like this because typically it's supposed to be at the back of all of, of our minds as citizens to say we are the ones in charge because 
a country serves its people. But how do we implement the office of the citizen constitutionally? Is something like a judicial commission of inquiry the right way to go? But to me, it sounds more reactive than, than the way to go. What are your thoughts on that? So my thoughts are that, you know, making sure that we were even working within the context we currently have. So, for example, you do have uh, something in your constitution or your law books that enables this kind of a public inquiry. That is a good first step. So that's a good thing to do. But if we stay at that level, like you said, it would be merely reactive. So while I commend that action and I encourage all those who should be out there helping that that committee or that tribunal to function and to get the results or achieve the objective for which it was set up, I I then say to you that let's not stop at that level. So what must we do? We must get back to what I said about being deliberate, being intentional and being strategic. So for the office of the citizen, we don't need another law for it. The the truth is that the constitution already gives us an office. It's just that we have not looked at the provision that is made on citizenship as an office. We need to just shift our mind. It's, It's purely a behavior modification thing. It is a growing into an office thing. Our office is already established in the constitution. We don't need some set of selfish politicians who, by the way, don't care for that office of the citizen to be the ones that empower us. No, no, no. When I hear citizens say, but we're not empowered, I say to them, my goodness, this is the height of foolishness. There's no more empowering that is greater than the fact that the constitution has many provisions concerning you as a citizen. That's your office. That's your mandate. That's your duty. That's your responsibility. That's your privilege. And so grow into the stature, the full stature of the person who occupies that office. So now that we know that our citizens are taken in by a a state of powerlessness, that has made them not to see that they actually do have an office that they should function in. And that this idea of being the lethargic, being docile, being uh, apathetic, acting unconcerned, and hoping that some messiah would, would emerge and save them is the wrong one. What must we then do? Then it means that those of us in society who have a level of training and have attained a certain level of understanding of how to organize and not to agonize, we need to begin to create communities of like-minded people who would invest their time toward the kind of enlightenment and education and mobilization that activates the office of the citizen. Some of these organizations that are working in civil society and doing their little, little things and and trying to do projects and almost beginning to think that their life is about my own NGO, Mongo, they should abandon that thought. What is much more urgent is for all of these organizations to come together in a way that is saying, Hey, the first independence was to liberate the African society from the external colonialists. The next independence is to liberate the African people from their own leaders who have distorted leadership. They have totally distorted it. And it comes back to a question that's been lingering in my mind as I've been listening to you. And especially when you mentioned that we missed a step in the development of Africa. There was pre-colonial Africa, and then we were just thrust, most countries 
thrust into post-colonial Africa and there was a step missing. And I sometimes wonder, was capitalism, the introduction of capitalism, part of the core course of, of the problems we see, the, the worshipping of wealth without understanding where it comes from? Is this what's caused where we are? I would say no. The reason is because there's really not been a, a true embrace of capitalism in our societies. That's the truth. What our political leaders have practiced is not even capitalism. If it were true capitalism, then what it would have done is that it would at least have delivered a certain level of prosperity in our society. It hasn't done so that. Would you, would you so would you call it so, crony capitalism then? It, it's more uh-huh, crony capitalism. Aha, uh-huh, uh-huh. so, so the, it's not capitalism. So what I think has happened is that we have had political leaders oscillate from welfareist, you know, what a system of philosophy, or socialism or communism, as the case may be, and then say they are doing mixed economy, and then they say, oh, it's capitalism we're practicing, but all of it in the bridge. Whatever it is that they have practiced has been in the bridge. Nothing has been practiced to the letter and the spirit behind those philosophies. And so we have ended up with an Africa that has been confused in terms of what particular economic philosophy and direction we have decided to establish for ourselves. And so what I normally say is that, look, when you are confused, you need to step back and say, okay, let me go back to to where I first started from, all right? Where we first started from in our African society is a society that did not encourage laziness. Did we encourage laziness? Were we a lazy no, continent? No, we were, we, were, we were quite hardworking. We were very hardworking continent. So step back to that. Now, it was, was the African society not the kind of society that lived the truism that a man who does not work should not eat? Nobody in the community just, you know, uh, uh, went to work only to come and feed an indolent person who stayed at home. We didn't do that because indolence was bad behavior. Wasn't that so? We need to sort of step back and say, okay, if we were a continent that celebrated effort, rewarded effort, and frowned at indolence, what does that say about us? It says that we are a society that believed in economic individualism. And yet, aha, in, aha. Do, do you get it? We believed, it in makes sense. In, we believed in economic individualism. But guess what? We also were a community, a society that believed that there were some that were incapacitated amongst us. Not that they were indolent. It was that they had no capacity to be as effort-driven as the rest. So we were a society that understood that our economic individuality would come together to support the weak amongst us. So we integrated into our economic individuality and reward for personal and individual effort systems of social support. That's why we had the social safety net. That's why we have the extended family system where the one who is able to make, you know, work hardest and make sufficient money would be able to have a, a portion of it that went into a collective post to support the ones who were not doing that well. Do you see that? So in, in, in understanding our, our, our root and the 
and the culture and the behavior that we show, we can now see that we did not simply practice socialism, where we simply said, all of everybody, you know, just work and put in a purse. And those who go to the work and sleep all day will get the same thing as those who worked hard. That's a distortion. We didn't do that. So what it means is that we can go back and say to ourselves, how then do we design a very African way of economic system? Well, I have come to the conclusion that the best way to design is to be led by economic empirical evidence. If we can use analysis and evidence to identify the different sectors of our economy, the different issues in our, in our society, who and what solved it best, we would then practice economic pragmatism as a philosophy. If it is okay. government that solves a particular thing best, we would build the systems within government to make sure that it solves those things best. If it is private sector that solves a particular thing best, we would give all of the enabling context for private sector to thrive in solving it. If it is citizens acting as a collective that collaborates to solve certain things better, we would give them all the liberty, the freedom they need in order to do that. Economic pragmatism. And that economic pragmatism would enable us to have the economic individuality laced with social consciousness, as well as the capacity to learn, to make mistakes, to correct, to adapt, to absorb, to reorientate. You know, we have all the flexibility because now we have seen that capitalism working at its best does produce plenty of prosperity, but that it does leave many people behind. And that because of the inequality it creates, it distorts the level playing field. And so we can tweak around it. We can look and we see that, oh, wow, when China was busy practicing a communism or socialism, as the case may be with Russia, it did not actually grow. It was distributing poverty equally amongst these people. So, so suddenly we come to the realization that we shouldn't get into this fetishness of ideology. We should simply say to ourselves, what design? What design for ensuring inclusive prosperity and you know, social, social well-being of our people? Yes. Can we as, have? as we wrap this up, listening to you throughout almost this hour, I can hear somebody who's very passionate about not only the continent, not only Nigeria, but about just better life for people. Now, I know that in 2019, you were supposed to run as a president for Nigeria or for the elections, and you pulled out. The question would be, would you still consider something like that, considering that there's still a lot of work to be done, not only in Nigeria, but across the continent? So there are many years ahead, so you can't predict, but right now, my greatest vision is to fix politics on our continent. And, and so I, I went away and spent six months at the Robert Bosch Academy doing some research into what the structural issues that are the bottlenecks to us having a political culture that enables us to have the kind of democracy that works for citizens. We have gross democracy. It's gross. It, and it, it's really gross you know, the, the democracy deficit that we have on our continent. We have democracy without dividend, without benefit for the people. And democracy is anchored on the people. Of course, we have identified that, look, democracy without the absolute engagement of the office of the citizen will be a captured democracy. It would be a captured state. 
where a few will have influence and leverage uh, do influence peddling and then to the utter neglect of the larger number. That's a problem. Uh, what then must we do to correct it? Uh, that was the basis of my, my work on fixed politics. And that fixed politics is something that looks at emerging an empowered electorate construct of the office of the citizen as pillar one in the triangle, and then imagine a new political class as pillar two on that triangle, and then reforming the political and electoral context in societies as uh, the apex of the pillar. So when you do this in a systemic and a, in a systematized kind of way, in a way that is very deliberate, what you would get is a structural change of our politics. We want to change our politics structurally. Because when we do that, then we can have political outcomes that resemble these values that an emerged and empowered electorate, a new political class, you know, that is designed to act in the or in public interest and subordinates their private interest to public interest. We merge that kind of political class. We merge political context where institutions of democracy act for the good of society and not act as part of the corrupted political class. They are mostly in, in sync with in current state of affairs across the continent. So this particular piece of work that I am doing on fixed politics is really my cause celebre at this time. And so my basic premise for it is that until we can do this kind of a thing, it is harder for you to have a sleeping electorate understand that it is in their own interest to correct the anomaly in the society. Thank you very much for being with us on the podcast and may the force be with you. <laughs> Remember to tell your friends, family and colleagues that the show is available to listen for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer or any other app that you use to listen to podcasts. Also, make sure to head over to www.iafrican.com forward slash radio. That is www.iafrikan.com forward slash radio and subscribe to get notified on new episodes and any other iAfrican radio shows. Stay safe on the web.